The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. While we're rolling this thing around, why don't you turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Before we launch back into God's Word, I want to uh, let you know something. Last week, uh, at the conclusion of our of our service, we, uh, as a church family, voted to affirm new elders. And uh, it's my joy to report to you that both elders, uh, uh, Britt and Jim Pitts, were both affirmed uh, by a, a remarkable uh, majority. And so they come uh, now officially to be a part of our elder team. Uh, as of now. So uh, welcome those guys on to our team as a part of our leadership. Thrilled to have both of those men serving uh, alongside me with the rest of those who pastor you and, and shepherd you. They are a great asset to our team, and I'm glad that the Lord made that clear to you as he made it clear uh, to us previous to that. Um, we had uh, this past week uh, apparently a lightning strike that hit our building and fried our fire alarm system. And uh, as of this morning, apparently we've discovered it fried our front projectors as well. So uh, thus, you see us scrambling around passing our red books and things at the end. We're still discovering things that uh, apparently got fried by God this week. Who decided we did not need those things any longer or that we needed to replace them, one or the other. Um, so uh, just so you know, that's what's kind of going on here this morning. So uh, I worked hard on my PowerPoint. So today you're going to all stand up and turn around and look at the back screen. I'm going to preach to the back of your heads all morning. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Go to First Timothy chapter 4. Uh, of course, the uh, Sunday when the uh, screens go down is a Sunday when I have nine points. So that means your pens are going to smoke uh, as, as you're trying to write. Uh, what I'll do to compensate for that is print up a, uh, an outline and post it on our uh, Facebook, Facebook page here. So if you're a member of our Facebook page, then jump on there later and you'll have the outline so you don't feel the need to write every single thing down. If you're not on our Facebook page, you should be. Uh, ask to join and we will accept you and um, you can get good information like that. All right. First Timothy chapter 4. Let's begin in verse 11 today and uh, we'll conclude chapter 4 together. Paul writes to Timothy, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. It's the word of the Lord for us. Well, Paul here in chapter 4 of this letter to Timothy, uh, you may recall, is 
is writing to encourage Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Timothy has been left behind to shepherd this congregation that is struggling in many ways, as Paul has now moved on to other uh, mission fields. And Timothy is a young man. We know from reading this book and already our, our study of it, he's a young man who is uh, tempted to be timid, who is not particularly forceful in his personality or his demeanor. We find out today that he's a younger man, and so he is in some ways disadvantaged by that in a culture that values age and experience. And in the midst of that, he's got some other leaders competing for the hearts and minds of the church. He's got some other elders who have been leaders in the church who have now gone sideways in their theology. They've, they've ventured off into heresy. He says they've shipwrecked their faith. And they've begun to teach a different gospel to the church. And they've begun to seek to pull members of the church off in their direction, away from the, the gospel, away from Timothy and Orthodox theology. And so Timothy is left behind to sort of manage all of this in the life of the church as a young man and a young pastor. And there are few things more difficult in life than trying to do what Timothy is doing. So it's no surprise to us that the man is discouraged, that the man has been beaten up, and that he's feeling down, and that perhaps even it seems he may be on the verge of quitting. And so Paul writes this letter to him to encourage him and to say, Timothy, stay in the fight. Keep up the fight. It's worth it. It's worth it. Keep it going, man. Don't give up. Don't give up. The Lord is with you. And so in chapter 4, he continues along that theme. And he really, uh, in the previous chapter, had laid out what are the qualifications for church leaders, for elders and deacons. And just prior to that, he had really just excoriated the false teachers and exposed them for their hypocrisy, for their false doctrine, for the fact that they're not even original thinkers. What they're doing is parroting, like a a parrot mimics, mimics somebody else. They're mimicking the doctrines of demons. And they become the mouthpiece for Satan himself in the church. In contrast to that, elders and deacons don't behave that way. They're different sorts of folks. And he moves from elders and deacons right into chapter 4, sort of zeroing down to Timothy the man. They say, Timothy, in contrast to the way these guys are behaving and thinking and acting, in contrast to their priorities, you need to have the Lord's priorities as a faithful servant. Here's what a faithful servant looks like in contrast to an unfaithful servant. And so he lays out really in this, in this chapter, in these 16 verses, some sort of principles, if you will, some marks, some characteristics of what a faithful servant of the Lord looks like. They're aimed primarily at Timothy. They're tailored toward a pastor because that's what Timothy was. And so we'll take them that way as they're given to us. But I just, before you check out because you're not a pastor and you say, well, these things don't apply to me, uh, you need to understand that all of these principles apply to the average believer as well. At whatever level God has called you to serve him, this is what faithfulness looks like. These characteristics in some measure need to mark your life as you seek to serve the Lord. All of us are called to serve the Lord in whatever sphere we find ourselves in. We're made in the image of God. He's left us here after we were saved so that we could be ambassadors for Him in the world, so that we could represent Him in our workplace, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, wherever we have influence in the world. And so we're called, whatever we are, as as a career, to serve the Lord and to represent Him in whatever sphere He's given us influence. So you're a servant of the Lord. The only question is, are you a faithful servant of the Lord? And if you're not sure what that looks like, well, we're going to sort of walk through that this morning. Now, last week we looked at the first uh, few verses here, chapter uh, 4, verses 6 through 10, and we sort of zoned in on really what the two primary 
first characteristics of a faithful servant are. And he tells us in verse 6 that faithful servants are, are constantly nourished by good doctrine. That is, just like an athlete needs to fuel their body with good fuel, the faithful servant has to fuel his mind and his heart with the truth of God's Word and good doctrine. If you don't fuel yourself with good doctrine, if you don't fill your mind with the Word of God and sound doctrine, just like the false, do- the false teachers, you'll shipwreck your faith in a hurry. And so a faithful servant begins his, his faithfulness in service by locking himself down in the Word of God and making that a priority, filling his mind with that, not allowing other voices in the world around him to pull at him and consume his time and consume his energy and consume his thought life. He doesn't set the Bible on the shelf and consume the, 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 the uh, news channel and the newspaper and the Facebook and on social media and all of the other hobby things that he's interested in reading. No, what she does is she goes to the Word God first, and all those other things take second and third place. The faithful servant has to consistently nourish themselves with the Word of God. And the second thing we saw last week is, is in verse 7 and 8, where he talks about training ourselves in godliness. Just like the athlete has to feed themselves well, the athlete also has to get out on the track and train themselves in order to be good at what they do, in order to improve, in order to be, be great at their sport. The athlete has to train themselves, intentionally train themselves, set aside time, set aside energy, do everything that they can in their life to organize their lives in such a way that they're actively and intentionally getting practice and training in order to progress in what they are doing, whether that be the runner or whether that be the basketball player or whether that be the person who does pole vaulting or the person who plays soccer or whatever. To be great at anything, you have to train yourself. You train yourself. And Paul, liking this sort of athletic analogy, he, he says, look, if your athletes are going to be great, they have to train themselves. If you're going to be godly, it requires training as well. You don't just wake up godly. You don't just drift into godliness. You, you're, you become godly because you pursue godliness, because you actively train yourself in it. And as he gets to the end of verse 8, When talking about this training, he says something that we didn't talk about last week. He says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul talks about the athlete. Hey, there's value in training the body. There's a lot of value in training your body, isn't there? Even if you're not an athlete. You know, doing some physical training is a good thing. It keeps you healthy. It keeps the heart pumping. It's good for your body to train it. If you're an athlete, there's an even heightened uh, level of, of, of uh, sort of relevance and importance to, to bodily training. You need it because it, 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 it prepares you for your sport, and you cannot succeed in your sport without it. But even the highest trained athlete who's the best at what they do, that bodily training has limited value. It has limited value, and that's what Paul is saying. It's good to train your body, but you have limited value. At some point, what happens to every athlete? To their bodies. I mean, age happens. Things creak and crack and hurt. And no matter how much you train as you age, you, your capacity begins to diminish. And eventually you can't, you can't compete anymore. You just can't be fast enough. You can't jump high enough. You just can't shoot well enough. So even, even physical training, though it has some value, its value is limited. And Paul says, look, but training in godliness has eternal value. There's an eternal value to training yourselves in godliness. Godliness is something that walks with you through your whole life as you prepare yourself to meet Christ one day. 
And you don't carry your, your, your athletic prowess into, into heaven, but you carry your godliness with you. People spend a lot of time in their life investing in earthly pursuits that have a limited value and have a short lifespan and often spend very little time investing in training for godliness which has an eternal value for the soul. And so training is important. So faithful servants, they, they actively nourish themselves with the Word of God. They actively train in godliness. And then when we get uh, to verse 11, he says this. He gives us our next principle, that the faithful servant maintains a singular focus. A singular focus. He says, for this end, Paul writes, we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God. We have our hope set on the living God. I've got a bunch of these principles, so the temptation for me is going to be to dive in deep on all these, and you're going to miss lunch if we do that, and I don't want that for you. So what I'm going to try and do is hit them on the surface and let the the accumulated weight of them sort of land with you. That's the goal this morning, if you're taking notes. So the athlete nourishes himself, he actively trains, and the the athlete maintains a singular focus. So when a runner is running the race, what 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 is she focusing on? You watch the Olympics, right? Have you ever seen the races? You ever seen these incredible athletes run? What do they what do they focus on when they're running? They're looking at the finish line. They've got their eyes dead set on the finish line. They're not looking at the runner next to them. They're not looking at what's behind them. They're looking dead ahead to the finish line. They've got a singular focus. They're trying to get there, and they're trying to get there before anybody else gets there, right? That's a singular focus. A distracted focus will, will wreck a race. You start looking at the people around you, start looking behind you, start getting distracted in your focus, and you'll never compete well. It's true in any sport. It's true in athletics for sure. The runner looks at the finish line. The Olympian has his mind or her mind set on the the medal stand and receiving the gold medal and winning the sport. And it's for that purpose that he or she toils and strives. Those words are are words that, that convey like tremendous effort and sweat and energy and pain. And the athlete exhausts themselves in order to focus on the end and to get there. But Paul says when it comes to godliness and the spiritual inside of a man or a woman, as we train for godliness, the way we compete and the way that we strive is with a singular focus. But our focus isn't on the finish line. Our focus isn't on some earthly medal. It isn't on winning some crown or winning some prestige or gaining some sort of wealth or some sort of notoriety. He says then we toil and we strive and we do it because we have our hope set on something in particular, or for that matter, someone in particular. Our hope is set on the living God. As we pursue godliness, we do that with a focus on the Lord. Our focus isn't on other people. We're not comparing ourselves to the next guy. We're not looking behind us at our failures in the past or even our successes in the past. We are looking dead set forward at the Lord Jesus Christ, our Heavenly Father as well, who are before us and in front of us, who stand at the end of the race and are prepared to welcome us home. The journey in this life for every faithful servant is a a journey toward godliness, toward Christ-likeness. It's a pursuit that we pursue our entire lives and we focus on the Lord and not other people and not on other things. And that becomes the singular focus. And it's toward that end that we toil and we strive. Our hope isn't on the finish line. It isn't on a medal. It's on the God who made us. It's on the God who gives us value and has set us to work in His cause. 
Our focus is on the the one who sustains us, the one who sent his very own son to die on the cross that we might have eternal life. Our our focus is on, on the one who preserves us every day that we wake up and we breathe the fresh air and we set out to do the work that he's called us to. He's our focus. We look to him in everything. And the moment you and I begin to get our eyes off of the Lord is the moment we begin to get sidetracked in our walk. The most vivid example of this, I think, in the Gospels is Jesus and Peter out on the water. Do you remember the story? Peter's in the boat and along with the disciples and the storm is raging and Jesus comes walking along and he tells Peter to step on out onto the water and walk out to him and Peter does so. And as long as his focus is singularly on the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens to Peter? He experienced the miraculous, right? God does something remarkable that nobody else apart from Christ himself has ever done, to my knowledge, and that's the walk on top of a lake like it's solid ground. But the moment his focus is distracted, what happens? Peter begins to sink. As you and I pursue godliness, as we set out on the race, and like an athlete, we, we toil and we strive and we work toward godliness, we have to do it with eyes focused on the Lord. He has to be the hope that's set before us, nothing else. Not the applause of people, not the affirmation of those around us, not to gain some sort of prestige or some sort of honor or to be regarded in some sort of way or the other by other people, but so that we can see the smile of our Savior who stands at the end of the rope waiting to welcome us into His kingdom. The faithful servant has a singular focus. Their hope is set on the living God. And here's the kicker. We don't do all this to gain His favor. We do it because we already have it. We do it because we already have it. We don't run to earn His favor. The athlete runs to earn the prize. The believer runs the race not to earn the prize. The prize has already been purchased by the blood of Jesus and given to us as a gift of grace. We run because we already have it and we long to please our Savior and our Lord. So we pursue godliness. We toil and we strive toward it. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul casts this a different way. He uses the running analogy and he says, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the upward prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The faithful servant maintains a singular focus on the living God. He is our hope. He is the one to whom we run. He is the one we seek to please. But let me tell you something else about faithful servants. The faithful servant ministers with courage. We see that in verse 11. Verse 11, Paul writes to Timothy, Command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. Underneath that instruction is a call for Timothy to do his ministry with courage. You have to be courageous to command people to do things. It seems that Timothy, at least to some degree, in some ways, was was tempted to be intimidated by these false teachers. And the temptation, perhaps, was for him not to be quite so direct, not to be as forceful as he needed to be as the pastor of the church in proclaiming the truth and calling people to obey the Lord and reject the false doctrine. It's quite possible that Timothy was sort of downplaying the spoken word. They didn't have quite the courage to stand in front of the people and say, here is the word of the Lord, and you must obey it. And so Paul calls him to courage, and he says, Timothy, these things 
You command them. You command people to do it. This is a military word that, that has the sense of to direct or to give orders. Timothy, I've set you as the commanding officer in the church, and you have the word that I've given you. You're to, you're to, you're to command people with the word. You're to stand with courage, whether it's popular or it's not popular. Whether they, they're, they're tempted to go after other teachers or not. Whether there's some blowback into your life because of the truth or whether there isn't. You stand courageous and you give the word of God and you call people. You command them to obey it. You command them. Timothy is to teach that church with godly authority. He's to command obedience. Paul's not calling Timothy to dialogue with people. He's not calling him to converse or to chat or to suggest or to recommend or to offer helpful tips. He's calling them to command people to obey the word of the Lord. And that is the baseline ministry of every faithful pastor. Every faithful pastor stands before his congregation and he says, here is the word of the Lord. You need to understand these are not suggestions. These are not helpful tips. These are not things that we're to dialogue about or we're to converse about or to enter conversations about. This is the word of the Lord. There's one appropriate response. Obey it. Do it. It's not really up for discussion. You must obey the word of the Lord. You must submit to the word of the Lord. You must serve the Lord. God's word is not a bunch of suggestions. They're commands intended to be obeyed. And the faithful servant has to have the courage to stand in front of people, whether it be a a group like this or privately in front of somebody, and give them the word of the Lord and command them to obey it. One of my favorite Old Testament figures is the prophet Ezekiel. I don't know if you've read too much of Ezekiel. It's not the easiest book in the Old Testament to read and understand. But I'm empathetic toward Ezekiel because I think he had the hardest calling of anybody in Scripture, perhaps. That's just my assessment. Maybe you think otherwise. But he had a hard calling nonetheless. He had a calling from the Lord that I don't think any one of us would have signed up for. And I want to give you a little example of it. Because in the interaction between he and the Lord, as God's calling him to the ministry that he set before him, he gives him the same sort of message that Paul is giving Timothy. And it's this. You have to be a man of courage. Ezekiel, I'm going to set you out to do some hard things. And you are going to have to be courageous about this thing. You can't be timid. You can't be weak. You go in my authority, and you speak my words, and you command people to obey it. Go to Ezekiel chapter 2 if you have your Bibles, or you can just listen along, beginning in verse 3. And listen to this interaction. The Lord speaks to Ezekiel. And Ezekiel records, And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they'll know that a prophet's been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed by their looks, for they are a rebellious house, and you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. How would you like that calling from the Lord? 
I've got a message for you. I've got a mission for you. I need you to go to this group of people. And they're rebellious and they're impudent and they're stubborn and they're not going to listen to a thing that you've said. And on top of that, they're mean and nasty and they might bite you. Kind of like sitting on a scorpion. That was the calling for Ezekiel. Ezekiel was called to go, but what was he called to do when he went into such a group, such an unreceptive audience? He was to say to them, Thus says the Lord God. That's another way of saying, here is the word of the Lord. You best do it. And he has to tell him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be intimidated by them. Don't be scared of them. Don't be intimidated if they don't listen. Don't be intimidated if they come at you with their words. Don't be intimidated no, no matter how they respond to you. You go and you give them the word and you command them to obey. You tell them this is the Lord's word and they must do it. And God goes on to tell him in chapter 3, verse 7, that he's going to equip him to handle it. Listen, he says, but the house of Israel, verse 7 of chapter 3, will not be willing to listen to you. For they're not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. That's a good illustration, right? Does anybody know what it's like to be hard-headed? Any hard-headed people out there? Hard-headed? Any of you? Does that sound familiar? Ask your spouse. They'll tell you. You're going to hard-headed people. They're not going to listen. But behold, he says, I've made your face as hard as their faces. And your forehead as hard as their foreheads. I love that. Hey, you're going to hard-headed people, but don't worry about it. I'm going to make you hard-headed too. And however hard-headed they are, I'm going to make you more hard-headed. You just go do what I've called you to do. Like Emory, harder than Flint if I made your forehead. I can see Ezekiel doing this. Like, what, what? Don't fear them, nor be dismayed by their looks, for they're a rebellious house. Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears, And go speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God. That's the calling for Ezekiel, and that's the calling for Timothy, and that's the calling for every faithful servant of the Lord. You get the word of the Lord, you listen to it, you read it, you hide it in your heart, and you go to the people that God's called you to, and you tell them, this is what the Lord has said, you must obey. You must obey. Command them to obey it. I'm going to tell you, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but there's anything there's a drought of in modern evangelicalism in our country, it's courage. So many stand in pulpits and preach with utterly no courage. So many believers operate out in their world, scared to death to open their mouth and speak the word of God to anybody, much less to command them to obey it. And when we operate with timidity, when we operate like we're afraid... What it communicates is that we don't really believe and embrace the message that we have. If we really believe that this is the word from the Lord, that the Lord has said it, and that he expects and demands that all men obey it, then we should have courage to be able to go out and say, this is what the Lord said, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. Turn from anything else that you're doing and do what God says. It's a call to courage for a faithful servant. He goes on in verse 12 to give him another thing, another principle. He says, look, not only do you need to minister with courage, Timothy, but you've got to stand confident in your calling. You have to stand confident in your calling. The way he casts this is this. He says, let no one despise you for your youth. Let no one despise you for your youth. 
He brings up Timothy's age because obviously it's an issue in the church. It's obviously an issue that he's a young man compared to the congregation, or at least compared to those who are respected in the congregation. Best estimates we have, Timothy was somewhere in the neighborhood of his mid-30s, maybe 35, somewhere between 35 and his late 30s when he's receiving this letter and he's doing this ministry in Ephesus. And so Paul is writing to him and he's saying, listen, you're considered by the culture around you to be a young man. Youthfulness, if you want, was sort of something that categorized anybody under the age of 40. Anybody under the age of 40 was considered youthful. Timothy's not a kid. He's not a teenager. But he is, or he would have been in his culture, considered a novice because of his age. People who were older than him and more experienced would have looked down to him and they may have thought things like, you know, what's this kid got to teach me? What's this little pipsqueak who hasn't lived that long? What am I going to learn from that guy? They would have been sort of tempted to not take him seriously. They might have been tempted to to pull rank on him, to, to put their age and experience up against his as though somehow that gives more weight to their message. And this wasn't lost on Timothy. It's not lost on any young person that attempts to go serve the Lord. It's true in Timothy's day, and it's true in our day. There's still some sense in which, even though our culture isn't the same as Greek culture, there, there still is this, this sense in which young people can be disdained by older people. Frankly, it works in our culture both ways. Young people think old people have nothing to say, that they don't know anything, that they can't learn anything from somebody who's older, that they're washed up, that their, their ideas and thoughts are antiquated. And they're enamored with everything that's new. But it runs both ways in our culture. Older people often look at younger people and they they just shake their hands and go, what's up with these young people these days, you know? They do crazy stuff. They listen to crazy music. It's amazing how as you get older, you find yourself on both sides of that equation, don't you? But Paul's message to Timothy is this. Don't let people despise you because you're young. Don't let people intimidate you because of your age. Don't back down because there are people who are older than you in the group who have something to say. I'm the one who has set you in this place. I'm the one who's called you to this ministry. And I'm the one who's given you the message. You go and you stand confidently and do what I've called you to do. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how gifted you think you are. It doesn't matter how eloquent you think or other people think you are or are not. You go do what I've called you and you do it with confidence because you stand not on your own authority, but you stand on my authority. He's saying to a young man, you go out there and you do your ministry with confidence. Because I've set you for this and I've called you for this and I'll give you everything you need and I've got your back. You stand on my shoulders and I'll carry you through. He's saying, Timothy, don't back down just because you're young. Don't back down just because they're tempted to write you off because of your age. You get out there and you get with it. And you have some confidence in the work that I've called you to do. Don't worry about how old you are. Don't worry about what they say about that. You just get after it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, great verse. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If there's a verse that you want to get plugged into your brain, plug that one in. The Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. 
What can man do to me? That's what Timothy needed to hear. He needed to hear, go do your ministry with confidence. Don't worry about your age. Don't worry about what they think or whether they listen or they don't listen. You just get out there and be confident. I'm your helper. I'll get you through your calling. If you go back, and we don't have time to do it this morning, but you can look back at almost at the calling of just about every great man and woman in the Scriptures, and you'll find that almost every one of them in some way or the other felt inadequate when they were called. They felt like it was either their age or their ability or their experience or their knowledge was somehow lacking. And God always, for the most part, had to shore them up. You could go back to Exodus chapter 3, and you could see God calling that great man Moses. Do you remember Moses? Old Mo? You remember him? Great. I mean, you know, looks like Charlton Heston, parts to see in the movie and everything. That guy? I mean, you go back and listen to God's initial calling to that man's life, and you hear Moses as a fearful man. Lord, what if they won't listen to me? What if they don't believe me? God, I, I'm, not, I'm not very good at speaking. Excuse after excuse for why he can't do what God's called him, why he can't go and be confident about what God's called him to do. And God time and time again says, Moses, I understand your weaknesses, but I am your God. You go do what I've called you to do and do it with confidence and I've got your back. I'll overcome your weaknesses. Trust me. A faithful minister of the gospel, a faithful servant of the Lord, is one who understands his calling and is able to navigate with a level of confidence. That even though he isn't the smartest person in the world, even though she's weak, even though she doesn't have all the answers, even though they don't know everything there is to know or have all the gifts that there are to have, they can go out and do the work God's called them to do, confident in the Lord who has called them and set them on course, that he'll make up the gaps. Listen, I'll tell you, uh, those of you who've known me for some time uh, know this about me, that probably the greatest fear I had my whole life was standing up in front of people and opening my mouth and having words come out to other people. Terrified of that when I was a kid. Terrified of that all the way through college. It still terrifies me in a lot of different ways. You take me out of this context and put me somewhere else around people I don't know and ask me to get up and say something, and the knees will be knocking and the fear just comes right back. It just comes right back. And so the fact that, that I'm doing this this morning or I do it any week or any time is, is evidence in my life that the Lord is faithful when he calls. That if he calls you to do something, that you get after it and you do it to the best of your ability and you do it with a level of confidence, even if there's fear that's laid in the back of your mind, even if you feel weak, even if you feel like you're not, like you're not worthy, like you don't have what you need, you get out there and you do what the Lord's called you with a level of confidence and he will shore up your weaknesses. And make you strong. And I'm concerned that there are so many believers that have been called by the Lord to get out there and do ministry in various ways, but they're just, they're just hampered by fear. They're, they're not courageous and they lack confidence. They don't think they can say things right. They don't think like they know enough. So on and so forth. They can list off all their weaknesses. Listen, the Lord's called you and He's set you and He's given you opportunity. Operate with confidence. And trust him to shore up the weakness. That's what he's saying to Timothy. Timothy, you've got to stand confident in your calling. And the way that you do that really sort of secondarily is this. It's the next principle. A faithful, a faithful servant sets an example with his life. He says in verse 12, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, love, and purity. 
So how was it Timothy was supposed to respond to these false teachers, to these people who were writing him off due to his age, to those who were exalting themselves over him, to those who were discrediting his teaching and discrediting his leadership in the church? How was he to respond to that? Well, how, what's, what's our natural response to that kind of stuff? What's your natural response to that kind of stuff? You know, lash out at people, try and set them straight, treat them the way they're treating you, sort of treat them in kind, respond in anger, set out to try and justify yourself or assert your position, argue with them. Paul says there's a better way. There's a better way to respond. There's a better way for a young man to respond in the face of criticism. And he says it's this, just live an exemplary life. Just live an exemplary life. Set an example by your life. Live in such a way that they see your godliness. And when your godliness is visible through your life, it discredits all of the criticisms they throw your way. That's his message. You want to silence the critics? Set an example of godliness. And he gives them some categories, particularly. He says, set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, faith, and purity. Boy, if there's any place where a preacher can get in trouble, it's with his mouth, right? So he says to Timothy, you need to set an example with your speech. When people hear you talk, they need to see an example of godliness. The words that come out of your mouth need to be godly words. They need to be words that build other people up. If you want to do a fun Bible study for yourself, go back to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Proverbs. And look up all the Proverbs that relate to speech and to your mouth. That'll keep you busy repenting for a good little while. Let me give you a sort of a few examples. Proverbs 10.19. The Bible tells us, When words are many... When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Some people just talk too much. Proverbs 12, 18 and 19. There's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. One person's words are like like a sword that jabs you. You ever met people whose words do that to you? Whose words wound and hurt? The tongue of the wise brings healing. Brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever. But a lying tongue is but for a moment. Proverbs 16.24 Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Proverbs 10.32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked, what is perverse. What does it look like to set an example in speech, an example of godliness in speech? It it, it looks like the things that the Proverbs tell us. It looks like words that that bring healing to people rather than cut them. Words that that are carefully considered and wise. It looks like words that are gracious, like a honeycomb. It looks like words that are, that are thoughtful. It looks like uh, words that, that, uh, that, are, that are filled with knowledge of God's Word. Words that aren't perverse. The words that come out of our mouth say an awful lot about who we are. 
That's why he says to Timothy, let your words set an example of godliness. Teach and say things that build other people up. Don't live at their level of speech. Set the bar higher. So that when people hear you speak, they see a model of what godly words sound like. He's already said a lot about words and how we speak. He talked about that in, in the qualifications for deacons and elders, didn't, didn't he? In a lot of ways. He said deacons and elders, they can't be, they're not, can't be argumentative. They can't be violent people, people whose words are used for violence, people who love a good argument. He says that. They're not quarrelsome. They're to be self-controlled. That means they don't say everything that they think. Hey, listen, don't say everything that you think. Everybody doesn't need to hear everything that you think. A lot of what you think isn't godly. It should be kept to yourself. I say that to myself as well. A leader in God's kingdom can't be double-tongued, we're told. He speaks the truth. Nothing but the truth. Always the truth. No matter who he's talking to, no matter who she's talking to, they hear the truth and they hear the same story. Not one story here and a different story to the next person. He's just simply saying, set an example in how you talk. Don't, don't live at the level of speech that your critics live at. Set an example of godliness. And when you do that, it becomes a contrast that the world sees. I don't know what you think. It doesn't matter to me really what you think about our current sitting president. But I know one thing about him. Somebody needs to teach him to control his words better. Somebody needs to teach him to use his words better. He doesn't live at a good level of speech. And he would be better for it if somebody could help him to choose his words differently. The godly person doesn't use speech that way. They set an example of godliness. And he goes on to say, not just your speech, but your conduct. Your life can't be divorced from your sermons. You have to live in such a way that when people observe you in public, or they observe you in your home, or they observe you in the grocery store, they observe you wherever they happen to observe you, that what you've said on Sunday is what they see when they see you. It's not two different people. You're not a hypocrite. You set an example in your conduct. So when they hear your words and they see your life, they see a consistent story. Paul had just finished saying that these false teachers were a bunch of hypocrites. And he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you set a different example of consistency in your life. That's what faithful servants do. And they set an example in love and faith and purity. And we don't need to go into those individually. The idea is this, that when they see you, they see godliness. They see love. They see somebody who loves the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loves his neighbor as himself. And if they're your neighbor, which they are because they're around you, they see and feel love. When they interact with you, Timothy, they should walk away feeling loved. You set the example for that. An unloving servant of Christ is a walking contradiction. And I've navigated church life for an awful long time. An awful long time. And I'm going to tell you, I've met an awful lot of people who claim to know Christ who are not very loving people. Who are harsh, who are critical, who are mean-spirited, who are negative. And there's really, that's a contradiction. God's servant is to be loving. The thing people should, should get when they walk away from an encounter with us is, I don't know about that guy, I don't know about that gal, but I know one thing. She loves me. They care about me. They like me. That should be the takeaway. We set the example of that. What does it look like? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It isn't irritable. 
Is it resentful? Does it rejoice at wrongdoing? It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes and endures all things. All the things that love does. A faithful servant is to set the example in those things. Their life matches up. Matthew Henry wrote this. He said, those who teach by their doctrine must teach by their life. Else they pull down with one hand what they build up with the other. I thought that was a great illustration. Those who teach by their doctrine must teach by their life. Else they pull down with one hand what they build up with the other. Kent Hughes said it this way. He said, godly character creates moral authority. That's a good summary of what Paul is saying to Timothy. Timothy, if you want to respond right as a faithful servant to your critics, here's what you do. You you become an example of godliness in their life. You show them what godliness looks like. And when they see godliness in you, that becomes the platform for your credibility and your authority to speak into their life. If you're going to be a faithful servant of the Lord, that's true of you too. When the people around you begin to see a model and an example of godliness in in your life, they'll be interested to hear what you have to say to them. But if those two things don't match up, they'll write you off in a second. Same is true of me. Verse 13, he says this. He says to Timothy, Timothy, you've got to keep the main things the main things. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and, and the teaching. Keep the main things the main things. I'm going to summarize this point because I think it's so obvious. In Timothy's day, the public reading of Scripture was a huge part of worship, and it had been for generations. High illiteracy rates, the high expense of having a printed volume that you could actually read of your own, made it critical that when the church gathered, that somebody stand up and read the Word of God, because for many people who were gathered in the room, that might be the only time that they actually heard the Word of God, is when somebody stood up and read it out loud, because they didn't have ten Bibles on their shelf at home like many do in our culture today. And the sad reality is, in their day, they didn't have the Word of God at home, so they couldn't hear it, so they had to come to church to hear it read. The sad reality is, in our day, people have shelves full of them, and still the only time they hear it is when they come to church and somebody stands up and reads it, like John did this morning. And he's saying to Timothy, listen, Timothy, in a world of conflict, in a church full of difficulties, there's going to be a thousand distractions, the things you can spend your time on. And if you don't want to shipwreck your faith, then you better focus on the main things. And the main things are the Word of God read, the Word of God preached, and the Word of God taught. If you compromise on any of those things, the house comes crumbling down. Whatever you do, you've got to do those things and keep them front and center. Don't lose those and trade them off for something else. You've got to keep the main things, the main things. And then in verse 15, he says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. It really brings us to the last piece. A faithful servant of the Lord is continuously practicing toward progress. Get that phrase in your head. Practicing toward progress. None of us get this perfect, right? None of us walk out godliness with perfection every day when we wake up. None of us model godliness in our speech with perfection every day. None of us model godliness in our conduct with perfection every day. But the faithful servant understands that. He understands that he's fallen. He doesn't get it right all the time. He's committed to practicing toward 
progress. He gets out there, and it's that athletic imagery that comes back around again, like train yourself for godliness in verse 7. Practice these things, he says. Practice these things. Get after it. You get up, and you go practice. Just like the athlete, he gets out, and he practices. And the only way for an athlete to get better and to be more consistent is to practice, to do a thing over and over and over again. Get it wrong a lot. Get up. Brush yourself off. Go do it again and again and again and again until you get better at it. Never quitting when it gets hard, but going at it. Practicing and practicing. If you're a basketball fan, you may remember a guy by the name of Mark Price. He was a great shooter in college and in the NBA as well. He's one of the few uh, basketball players, professional basketball players, to end his career shooting over 90% from the free throw line. And when he was interviewed, he was asked about free throw shooting. And here's what he says. He says, I took 250 to 300 shots a day. And improve my free throw shooting at each level. I didn't just show up. I took it upon myself to get better. And it took a lot of effort. He became a great shooter because he practiced every day. 250, 300 shots every day in the gym. Day after day after day after day. Practice after practice after practice. When it was boring and boring and boring to shoot free throws, he kept shooting them. And his practice led to progress. He became a guy who mastered that art. Godliness is the same way. We'll master godliness when we practice it. When we get out there over and over, we live it. And we get it right sometimes and we get it wrong sometimes. And we get it wrong, we dust ourselves up and we get back in the game and we practice some more. Reading about godliness doesn't make us godly. Practicing godliness makes us godly. There's a Spanish violinist whose name I can't pronounce right. I'm sure I'm butchering it, but I'm going to try. His first name is Pablo. We'll just leave it at Pablo because I can't say his last name. He said something I thought was remarkably intuitive. He said this. He said, a genius for 37 years I've practiced 14 hours a day, and now they call me a genius. That's great. What he's saying is, I'm not a genius. I just work my butt off 14 hours a day for 37 years. I ought to be good at it. Right? I ought to be good at this thing. I practiced a lot. Not a genius. There's no genius to godliness either. It's the art of practicing every day. Getting out there in the sphere of the world in which we live and living it. Getting it wrong, getting it right, getting back up and doing it again. Getting it wrong, repenting, finding forgiveness from the Lord and going at it again the next day. And eventually... We see progress. And it's not just that we see progress. Everybody else around us sees progress as well. You know, there's some ladies that sit in the back over there who who knew me back in 1995 when I first came on staff at the church. And that's been a long time ago. Um, And some of them heard my first sermon that I ever preached. And I would be embarrassed for you to hear my first sermon I ever preached right now. But I think, and I hope you could ask them, I hope that they would say over these years they've seen progress. They've heard some crappy sermons along the way, trust me. Maybe every once in a while a good one. But they've at least seen somebody who stands up and practices every week. And over time, I hope there's been progress. Not just in what I say, but in who I am and how I live. And I hope that's true of you, too. The more you get out there and you do what God's called you to do, the more you practice it, 
you, you, progress is seen. And as people look at your life and they say, something's different about that guy. Something is different about her. She's not who she used to be. Something has changed. And all of a sudden, there's a moral authority to speak into their lives truth and to command them to obey what God has called them to do. Listen, I don't know what God's called you to do. That's between you and the Lord. I can't discern it for you, but I know one thing. You live somewhere. You work somewhere. You've got some sphere of influence. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got a ministry to be about somewhere, somehow, some way. If you're to be faithful in it, you're to be faithful in it by walking the same way Paul was calling Timothy to walk. These same principles apply to you. They apply to me. Don't give up. Don't give up when it gets hard. Stay at it. Stay at it. Keep your eyes on, on the Lord Jesus, the one who, who understood that you were a faulty human being, who in spite of your rebellion loves you, who in spite of the fact that you rejected him has embraced you, even to the point of being born into human flesh and being crucified and nailed to a Roman cross, dying in your place, shedding his blood for your sin, paying the penalty for your rebellion. And then standing at the doorstep of your life with arms wide open saying, Listen, place your trust and faith in me. I'll forgive you. I'll wipe this slate clean. I'll give you a fresh start. I'll be your Lord and Savior. And I'll secure you to the end of the run. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to know him. As soon as we finish in just a moment, I'm going to pray and I'm going to be in the back of the room. There are other people back there that are godly folks who'd be happy to talk with you, pray with you. If you want to know what it means to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to receive Him, to embrace Him, come talk to me. Come talk to one of us. We'd be happy to share more about that with you. be happy to pray with you any way that you need prayer. But today you need to hear the words of the Lord and you must obey them. You must obey them. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, these are, uh, these are hard principles. They were hard for Timothy to hear. These were not natural things for Timothy. It was not natural for him to be courageous and confident. It was not natural for him to command people to obey your word. It was natural for him to be intimidated by people because he felt insecure about his age, about his abilities, about his ability to stand toe-to-toe with the critics. I suspect in some ways that rings true of some of us in the room here today as well. Now, we're not pastors of a church in Ephesus, but you've called us to something. And whatever it is you've called us to do, perhaps we've tried it and found some opposition or some critics along the way that have intimidated us, caused us to back down. We've lost our courage, lost our confidence. Maybe today, Lord, if that's the case, that we pray that by your Spirit you would just bolster that confidence, remind people to look to you. They stand on your shoulders. But their singular focus and their hope must be in you. And like Ezekiel and like Moses and like Timothy, like me and many others in the history of your work, you overcome our weaknesses. We can go with courage and confidence because we trust in you. Because you're unlimited. You can do all things. And you know all things. Lord, I pray for those in the room who have shut down whatever ministry you've called them to because of fear and lack of confidence. And these same things that Timothy was struggling with, Lord, encourage them to get back in the fight, to get back to practice, to get back to training the godliness, and to get back about the work of the ministry you've called them to. 
We pray these things for your sake, Lord Jesus, and in your honor. Amen.